0: And Father, I pray that you anoint Andy's words as he speaks this morning. Uh, We thank you for him being able to be here with us. And Father, I pray that as we listen to what Andy has to bring, that you will open up our hearts to the idea of justice, Uh, that you will give us passion and vision for this. And Father, we just pray for your presence to be with us right now. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Is that working? uh, Yeah? I'm just going to fish myself up here. If I'm a little bit hoarse, by the way, I'm just moving back so that you guys might be able to see the screen as well. I'll come and share a few pictures. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. If I'm a little bit hoarse, it's probably because the, uh, the band was just so unbelievably good. Um, uh, thank you very, very much. I just so enjoyed that time of worship. It's amazing. Um, uh, I live in Hearn Hill, but I'm considering coming here every week. Um, uh, that was just really amazing. Thank you. Really amazing. Um, and uh, also, I walked a little bit slowly up. There wasn't in an attitude of meditation and prayer. It's just because I was trying to put a patio down yesterday, and I'm aching everywhere, so I'm, uh, so I'm a little bit slow. Um, some things never change, do they? Uh, anyone here who's passionate about football? I don't know. I am, but uh, and my wife's a Watford fan. Actually, she was born and brought up here. But um, uh, so the World Cup's coming next year. I'm looking forward to that. Um, uh, anyone fancy our chances against the Germans if it comes down to penalties in the semi-final? Um, uh, no, I thought not. Um, some things never change. Does anyone here enjoy pottering in their shed, um, uh, just sort of doing stuff? Um, well, it's always the case, you know, that as soon as your hands are coated in grease and grime, uh, that, of course, is when your nose is going to itch or, uh, or when you're going to need the loo. Uh, when you drop a tool, of course, it's going to roll to the most inaccessible part of your shed. Um, uh, some things never change. If you're in a traffic queue and you change lanes, uh Of course, the one you've just left is going to go faster. same rule applies in shops um, uh, and in cinema queues and supermarkets. Uh, As soon as your body is fully immersed in that nice warm bath, your phone will ring. Some things never change, do they? Your computer isn't working. You call IT. Um, You've tried everything already. You've tried the infallible logging off and logging back on. still hasn't worked. Uh, IT come over. Uh, You show them exactly what you've done. This time it worked, and of course, you look like an idiot. Um, It happens to me all the time. Some things never seem to change, do they? Uh, These are, of course, all just wry observations, but I want to tell you also about some other things that also haven't changed for a very, very long time. When the prophet Amos uh, surveyed Israel and, um, uh, and the surrounding nations in around 750 BC, this is what he found. Talking about Gaza, he said, she sold whole communities of captives uh, to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. Talking of Edom, he writes, he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Talking of Ammon, he says, he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Talking about Israel, he writes, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl. This was 750 BC. This is a reliable historic record as well as being uh, uh, the voice of, uh, of prophecy. Amos is writing about mass slavery, about forced labor, about sexual violence and about oppression of the poor. I'm struck by two things as I read this. Firstly, is, uh, is the sheer violence in the words that Amos is using. So, stifling all compassion, ripping open pregnant women, selling people, in fact, whole communities of people, violence against the vulnerable, trampling on people like dust. I'm struck by the violence. The second thing, in some way more horrifically, I'm struck by, is actually the comparison to today. Today there are forty five point eight million people in slavery even now as we sit here. That's more actually than at the height of the slave trade in Wilberforce's era. There are four point five million people who are trapped in forced sexual exploitation. One hundred and fifty billion dollars, billion dollars, was made in twenty fifteen through forced labor, mainly through forced prostitution and, uh, and coerced labor in heavy labor institutes. Across the world, if you're a woman between ages 15 and 44, you're actually more likely to die from domestic violence than you are from uh, motor accidents, cancer, war, and malaria all put together across the world. So it seems that nearly 3,000 years after Amos was writing uh, these things, mass slavery, violent exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable, these things are as prevalent today, maybe more prevalent as they were at the time that Amos was writing. They haven't changed in 3,000 years. So with that as just a rather grim backdrop, I just want to tell you a little bit more about IJM and the work that it does, and then also to pass on... One or two things that I learned um, uh, working in the field for IJM in Chennai. Uh, I don't know if you, can you, you have you guys got a screen there. You have. Okay. So um, this is Gary Haugen. Uh, Gary Haugen was a young lawyer. He's IJM's founder, and Gary was a young lawyer um, back in 1994 when he was asked by the United Nations to go and investigate a brutal genocide—the one that had happened in Rwanda. He was asked to gather evidence. Against the perpetrators of that genocide. And to do that, he had to spend a lot of time in around a hundred mass graves, massacre sites, effectively, mainly in churches across Rwanda. He was knee-deep in bodies having to do that. And he talks actually about one question that kept haunting him all the time. It kept coming back to him. And that question was, well, the, what had gone on was clearly illegal. Murder and genocide in Rwanda was uh, as illegal as it is in the UK. So, how could this have happened? How could this actually have happened, given that it was illegal? And as he had this question, one very simple thought kept coming back to him, which was that the problem was not a lack of law. The problem was a lack of law enforcement. That was the problem. The laws were there. They were not being enforced. No one had taken action to actually enforce the laws that were there to protect vulnerable people in Rwanda. No one had enforced them. What that meant was that stronger, violent people were able, in the end, to oppress weaker, vulnerable people. And as Gary thought more and more about this problem, uh, he realized actually that this issue, the issue of unchecked everyday violence against the vulnerable, He realized that this issue was not just in Rwanda. After all, it is illegal to chase a widow off her land with clubs and machetes in Uganda, but it frequently happens. It's illegal to rape girls in Guatemala, but one-third of girls will be raped before they leave adolescence in Guatemala. It's illegal to force people to labor against their will in India, but current estimates are that there are 18 million slaves today in India. These things are all illegal. But the problem is, the laws are not enforced. That was actually the same basic problem even back 3,000 years ago in Amos's time. Um, If you look here, what we see in each of these problems that Amos is highlighting is that they were against the commonly acceptable principles or the laws at the time. So note how Amos records what's happening. He talks about disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. He talks about stifling compassion denying justice to the oppressed. So, selling people into slavery and violently abusing women was illegal also in Amos' time, but it still went on. So, it's this fundamental, global, long-standing problem that Gary Haugen founded International Justice Mission to address. That's what's at the heart of its work. The mission is this. It's to rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. And IJM works across 17 field offices um, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, um, rescuing people from violent situations. We've just seen a rescue on Lake Volta. um, uh, Helping survivors to then come to be fully human after their ordeal, so providing aftercare, and then pursuing the people who are perpetrating this to try and prevent others from becoming oppressors. Um, And then finally, uh, working to try and fix... The law enforcement systems that have broken, and they're allowing these things to happen. So that's really what IJM does, by way of introduction. I want to tell you a little bit now more about kind of how about my story, really, and how I fitted into IJM, uh, and uh, and how I came to it. So I was uh, uh, back back in 2010. I was a reasonably successful lawyer, working as the um, global head of legal at uh, Endemol. Endemol makes. Uh, uh, TV programs, it's the largest independent TV company, um, uh, making amazing shows like, like you know, I can't remember, um, uh, but, uh, and then uh, after that, before that, I'd worked for a, a global law firm and, uh, and I'd worked also as the group director of legal for uh, ITV for a few years, so, so I was a lawyer, um, I was married, I'm still married, um, uh, to the same wife, um, uh, with two children uh, who were eight and ten back then, uh, here's us as a family. Um, so that's us. Uh, I had a sense really that my time as a lawyer was kind of drawing to a close um, and my wife Rachel felt that uh, that actually we were just a bit too comfortable uh, living where we were. When we heard about IJM and the amazing work that was going on rescuing the Dalits, uh, the poorest people in society from slavery in rock quarries and, and salt mills and things like that, when we heard about that work we decided to go and to join and um, it wasn't an easy decision, actually, but, uh, but I had been asked to go and do it. I felt that as a lawyer, I had the right background, and I felt that I had a uh, kind of management experience that could contribute. Um, and I guess deep down, just between us here, I'm a bit embarrassed to say it, uh, I guess I felt maybe the office needed my awesomeness. Um, so, um, uh, so I'm sorry to admit that. Um, so, so we basically, we took our kids out of school, we packed up our house, uh, we rented it out, we put everything, all our possessions, um, uh, into a big metal crate, we uh, shipped it all out to Chennai, um, uh, and then India changed its visa rules. Um, uh, and so we couldn't get out there. And we uh, spent five months trying to get a visa. We moved 14 times during those five months because we kept thinking that every week, every week, the next week, the visa would come. Uh, we tried to home educate our girls until they actually fired us, that's true. Um, uh, we had to then put them in private school because we couldn't get them back into the state school system because it was very uncertain, our kind of duration. Um, so our domestic life was basically in crisis. And, uh, and I was there also trying to lead this office in Chennai remotely from lots of different houses uh, in the UK. Uh, so everything was in crisis. So as you can imagine, that, that kind of sense of personal awesomeness was, uh, was rather dented by that whole experience. And when it came down to it, Actually, I was completely and utterly powerless and out of control, okay? Uh, I was trying to lobby MPs, do all that kind of stuff to get a visa. Couldn't get a visa. Um, uh, I couldn't even make it to the front door of the office that I was meant to be leading. Now, that is one massive, colossal fail, isn't it? Couldn't even get to the front door. Um, Eventually, we did get there, or else this would have been a very short sermon. Um, so, uh, and, and what an office it is, by the way. It's 90 Christians in Chennai who are uh, working to free people from slavery, uh, working with, with, uh, with terrible sexual violence every day. Um, uh, tremendous suffering, real, real kind of heartbreaking stories day in, day out. And yet, you'd, honestly, you'd never visit a more joy-filled, exuberant, hopeful place in that office in Chennai. It's unbelievable. So we got there in the end. Um, but even after getting there, uh, that wouldn't have been the last time that I would experience that sense of powerlessness and, uh, hopelessness and inadequacy, exactly the same feelings that I'd had during our visa delay. God had used that visa delay in the end to just begin to teach me some lessons that I really needed to learn before I went to lead that office in Chennai. I want to tell you a couple of stories. In 2012, I went on a trip up to, uh, the Punjab, and you can see it's with a little red arrow at the very, very top of India. Uh, the first thing I learned, actually, is that, I mean, we, we often call it the Punjab here. The first thing I learned from my Indian friends is it's not the Punjab. They said, Andy, do you live in the London? I said, no, I live in London, but it, but it is the UK. Um, and then uh, they said, it's not not Punjab, it's Punjab. So those are the first two things I learned. Anyway, whatever you call it, I went there in 2012. Um IJM had been working in an office which is in the south of of India, just where the yellow arrow is just now. Um, And IJM had been working for over 10 years there, freeing people from slavery. Uh, And it was a very good methodology. It was working. Strong relationships with the police, strong relationships with local government officials. Thousands and thousands of slaves were being rescued and rehabilitated. We had had lots of successful prosecutions. So it was working well in the south of India. But there were hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of slaves up into the north of India. And at that point in time, not a single one of them had been officially released. Not a single one. So we wanted to expand the work that we were doing across the whole of India. So we went up there. And what we found on arrival was whole villages of people still in slavery. Uh, They were living at home, but they were living surrounded by local landowner's uh, property and you were forced to work for the local landowner. If you tried to, uh, to work for somebody else um, uh, or if you tried to ask for something which even came close to the minimum wage, you would be savagely beaten or worse. They were basically regarded as the property of the landowner. So we spent three days traveling from village to village. Uh, each time we'd be taken to a cow shed because that was the local kind of gathering place lots of flies around and they would fetch chairs for us we'd sit down, we'd drink sweet cup of Indian chai and then we'd be garlanded Okay, so uh, here's a picture of me with some garlands up there in Punjab and as we sat there person after person would come forward with story after story about their lives still in slavery Working seven days a week, sometimes getting paid absolutely nothing, uh, sometimes getting paid slightly more than that. Not allowed to work for anyone else. Daughters and wives frequently sexually violated. Husbands and fathers savagely beaten into submission. Children forced to work, which meant, of course, that the next generation is also condemned to repeat the same cycle. There's no exit. And after telling us these stories then one by one the people would actually beg for us to help them to get released because they knew that that's what we were, we were there to try and work out. Honestly, I'd never felt like such a fraud. Yeah? I sat there being honored as a rescuer and I was sitting there thinking, how on earth can we rescue these people? The problem here is difficult, really difficult, much harder than it was in South India. The slave owners were ultra-violent, they carried guns and they were above the law. The state of Punjab actually uh, denied even the very existence of slavery. We had no government relationships. Local police and courts were at best incompetent and at worst corrupt. Oh, and it was 1,500 miles away from our office in Chennai. So the situation was really desperate. The problem was clear and horrific, but we felt powerless and out of control. We had no idea what we could do to rescue these people pausing there, because I'm going to come back to that story later. Um, another story. Here are two guys called uh, Nilumber and Dialu. Dialu is uh, uh, the one sitting next to me, and Nilumber is just here to the end of the slide. And IJM got them released in December 2013 after they had been through a truly horrific ordeal. And they had been trafficked from their village to a neighboring uh, uh, state to work in a brick kiln. The brick kiln owner thought that he was buying uh, 10 slaves from the trafficker, but in the end, only two arrived. So the brick kiln owner was absolutely furious and he took it out on these two guys. Um, He worked them from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in his brick kiln and then he brought them home and he would beat them till they were unconscious with his his friends. And then the next day, they would work from 8 till 4 and then get beaten unconscious again uh, that evening. That went on for uh, their first six days. On the seventh day, he took them into the forest and he asked them, he said, what do you want to lose, your life, your legs, or your hands? And when they said, our hands, he and his henchmen held them down, he fetched a little axe, and he actually hacked off their right hands. So you can see, actually, uh, uh, you can see the little yellow stub for Dialu and Nilanboa too, and he has a stub for his hand. So when I first met them, it was three months after that, and uh, IGM had secured their freedom, And we'd also secured their safety, but they were obviously still hugely traumatized. And um, uh, uh, and there's no social security in India. So uh, they were also worried about how they would work. They're manual laborers. How are they gonna work? Um, And uh, Diallo, the youngest one, only 19, wondered, how will I ever get married? Very important in Indian society to be married. He thought, how will I ever get married? I can't work. Just like in Punjab, in the face of that kind of violence, um, and the face of that kind of horror, we felt powerless, we felt really out of control. There are dozens of other stories that I could share with you. Um, uh, situations where people were caught in slavery and, uh, and a government official was blocking rescue. Or situations where we actually got people out and the slave owner was caught red-handed with slaves there and yet actually the j- prosecutor and the judge just didn't know the law. And so uh, they couldn't apply it and the trial fell apart and people walked free. So I could tell you dozens of other stories like that. So in the face of that, In the face of that sense of powerlessness and inadequacy, what do you do? When the situation seems so utterly hopeless, when evil seems to be triumphing, where do you turn? When the situation is out of control in the end, uh, how do you react? Well, to answer that, I just want to flick back again to uh, firstly to a little bit in Amos. So, no, sorry, this is Micah. Um, Amos and Micah were uh, compatriots, so uh, Amos actually was writing about 35 years uh, before Micah, but the situation they were in was very much the same. We saw some quotes from Amos earlier about the situation, the mass slavery. Micah talked about the same thing. and uh, So Micah's reaction was this. He was lamenting about uh, how rulers despise justice, and he says this. He says, because of this, I will weep and I will wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackal and moan like an owl. So it sounds from that, doesn't it, that he had that kind of same sense of personal powerlessness. Uh, moaning, like a, moaning like an owl, howling like a jackal. He had that same sense of powerlessness. This is in chapter 1. That same sense of powerlessness about the situation around him. But Micah was actually very clear about what to do. And I don't just mean moaning like an owl. Um, he gives this, uh, this verse, in, uh, uh, which we sang earlier, in chapter 6, verse 8, which is a famous verse. You'll know this. He says this, he has shown you, O mortal, I love this idea of O mortal again, it's just showing our powerlessness and our kind of um, almost insignificance in a way in the face of God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is required of you and it is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. I don't have a tattoo, but if I was going to get one, probably be that. It's pretty good, isn't it? This is not a call to be like Jason Bourne or Lara Croft. It's not a call for heroics. This is actually a call to take simple steps of obedience and to do them with justice, mercy, and humility. Simple steps of obedience. But really, how could it be that simple, and how could they be that confident that it's going to work? Well... Amos and Micah both knew God's character. We were talking earlier on about some things seeming not to change. Um, But actually, there's only one thing that never, ever changes, and that is God's nature. And both Amos and Micah knew God's nature. They knew it from reading the scriptures, and they knew it also from their peers at the time who were talking about it. And we heard some of those verses earlier, actually, about the God of justice. And uh, here are a few more. So they knew that God is a rescuer. As it says in Exodus, I've, I've seen the misery of my people, I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. God's a rescuer. They knew what Job had found out, that God saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. That's what Job found. They knew from David that uh, the Lord secures justice from the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Amos and Micah knew all this. They knew from Isaiah, who is prophesying at the same time as Micah, just a little bit after Amos, um, uh, for the Lord is a God of justice. They knew this. They knew God's nature is justice. Amos expresses this very beautifully when God puts these words into his mouth and he says them, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Martin Luther quoted this last verse in his I Have a Dream speech, declaring freedom for people who are oppressed. And elsewhere, Martin Luther, who knew a thing or two about fighting for freedom, um, uh, said this. He said, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long. So the long, long arc of the moral universe, but it always bends towards justice. So Micah and Amos knew this because they knew that God's character is justice. And they knew that God is sovereign. So because of that, Michael knew Micah knew that a very simple call to everyday acts of obedience, to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly would work. You see, and this is really the critical point of this sermon. If we walk in simple acts of obedience, then we are aligned with this moral arc of the universe that bends towards justice. Walking in simple obedience aligns us with God and His character and His nature. Our God loves people and He loves rescue. And because He is sovereign, there will be rescue. There will be restoration for people who have been rescued. There will be justice for people who are actually perpetuating acts of injustice. Systems that are bent and warped beyond our imagination will be transformed. And that actually has been the IJM story, really, testimony after testimony. Um, uh, Here are some of the things that have happened since uh, Gary Haugen actually started it. There have been more than 20,000 people rescued since since, uh, 2006. Uh, 4,200 people right now are in aftercare dealing with trauma that that they have been rescued from. Um, uh, There have been more than 800 violent criminals convicted because IJM is prayerful. And it aligns itself with God's nature and trusts. We have the same story in the New Testament too. Um, uh, if you think about Paul, Paul was shipwrecked. Do you remember the story? Uh, it was a violent storm that blew up. They, tied to, they tried to actually use ropes to tie the ship together. They threw all the cargo, their life investment, overboard. Um, uh, they threw the anchor and stuff in just hoping that it would catch. But still the ship rolled on. And then they even threw the tackle overboard um, uh, as one last desperate attempt. And after all of that, what Paul says is this. He says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. No, here it's the we. Paul says that he gave up hope too. He was powerless and out of control. We gave up all hope. God then comes to Paul in a dream. And he says, actually, stay on board. If you all stay on board, no one's going to die. So Paul wakes up. And uh, he goes and he tells everyone on the ship that, just stay on board and you're not going to die. Now, Paul would probably have found that a very hard message to believe. Um, uh, but in an act of obedience, he woke up and he said that. What happened? We know the end of that story. No one dies. God actually saves everybody on board that ship through one simple act of obedience, that of Paul, um, uh, who did what he was told. He relayed the message that God gave him. A similar story, the feeding of the 5,000 men including women and children, probably 10,000. The people have been walking all day and talking, listening to Jesus. Now they're hungry and they're restless. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you feed them. Um, if you're a disciple there, you know, uh, they're all there. Uh, you haven't got any money. There's no food there. Tesco's doesn't deliver to this mountaintop. Okay, so um, uh, what are you going to do? How are you going to feed these people? And, uh, and that's what they say to Jesus. But Jesus just tells them, go, find what you can and bring it to me. So they go, they find the two fish and the five loaves, and they bring it to Jesus. They do what he says. Um, But they're they're embarrassed. I mean, imagine how humiliating that must have been. The whole crowd was there. The disciples had been asked to feed them, and they come with Jesus and say, here you go. That would have been deeply humiliating and embarrassing um, uh, to bring this insignificant-looking gift to Jesus. Uh, That's how they would have felt. Uh, Of course, we know the story. Jesus multiplies the little that they bring, everyone gets fed. Coming to a conclusion, really, I want to tell you a little bit about Alice Suganya. This is a, you can ignore the text. I couldn't find a photo of her without, without this text. Um, uh, I worked with her for a few years in the IGM Chennai office. This is a wonderful woman. So she turned up at IJM in the early 2000s uh, asking for a job. They actually thought that she was the cleaner. When they worked out that she was there for an interview, interview, they interviewed her, and they gave her a job uh, on reception. And actually, she was so desperate to work that she started work that day. Her husband didn't really want her to work, but they needed the money. So she started that day uh, working on reception. Um, Alice is now the director of casework for all of IJM's bonded labor work in India. She's responsible for rescuing people from bonded labor slavery across the country. Alice has almost certainly been on more rescue operations than definitely than anyone else in IJM, probably than anyone else living today. She's led more than 150 rescue operations into def- difficult places, leading between five and 10,000 people to freedom. And she's responsible for providing aftercare for all of those people, uh, or her team is, and she's responsible, too, for bringing prosecutions against violent offenders. That's Alice. Alice is only five foot two. Okay. Alice is uh, very unassuming. Alice hates talking in public. If she was here today, she'd be sitting at the back of the room. She's not. She'd be sitting at the back of the room uh, quietly, just really hoping that there'd be no attention turned on her. That's Alice. I mention her. Because it's Alice who told me that her taking that job as a receptionist at IJM was, for her, bringing the two fish and the five loaves. That's what it was for her. And God has multiplied that over and over and over again. So, just finishing those stories that I began earlier about Punjab and uh, Nilamba and Dayalu, Okay, We, in Punjab, we began taking very slow steps. We began talking to government officials, the one that would talk to us. We began trying to work out who we could work with. Um, after 18 months of work, uh, we managed to rescue two people. Now, that doesn't sound like a very big deal, was with those two people, but it doesn't sound like a big deal, but these were the first two people ever formally rescued in, uh, in Punjab, in North India, the very first two ever. And then we kept working and then we rescued five more a little bit later. Here they are um, uh, with their formal government release certificates which says they're no longer a slave. And after that, the government had to acknowledge that there was slavery and we began to see system change. The police recognized that slavery existed and they agreed for us to train 8,000 police people. Uh, The government agreed to set up a bonded labor helpline. So God began to work with the very little that we brought in our hopeless situation. With Nilambo and Dailu, in the face of that trauma and that violence, and it, when we felt completely out of control, IJM workers, social workers, began working with them day to day. Progress was very slow at first because they, didn't, they couldn't even talk about the horror that they'd been through. But they gradually did begin to talk about it. And only a matter of months later, they talked about it on CNN in front of an audience of about 200 million people because they wanted to make sure that no one else went through the situation that they were going through. They also, with the help of the IJM lawyers and social workers, um, talked about it to the court. They gave testimony. And I'm overjoyed to say that in December 2016, um, all eight of the people who had uh, chopped their hands off were given life sentences, which is the longest uh, sentence that's ever been given to uh, a slave owner uh, for IJM. So their bravery, in the end... uh, 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 brought that, that conviction it, with such trauma and brutality these stories aren't perfect and there's a sadness in this one too which is that Neil Amber died just two months before the conviction uh, and so he never lived to see the thing which he was, uh, he was fighting for uh, but he was fighting for that and it happened and this is, this is uh, dialu now before, the, uh, uh, before he lost his hand Dialu had never ridden a bike he didn't own a bike um, but with the help of doctors and a prosthetic right hand and IGM social workers walking with him humbly day after day, making small progress every day, now he can ride a bike. That means that he can travel further from his village, which means he's more likely to be able to find the kind of work that he can do. So, so these, are, these are the, the, the stories uh, and the hope and the joy that comes in the end from those taking those small steps of obedience, um, even in the face of powerlessness and seeming out of control. So just finally to finish, I, can I ask you to just to close your eyes for a minute and to think about a situation where you see injustice? Maybe it's close to home. Maybe it's something in the UK which you see, which is just plain wrong, uh, where someone or a person is oppressing someone else. Maybe it's a global issue like slavery, forced prostitution, land grabbing of widows or any of the other things we've touched today. And if nothing is springing to mind, then can I ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to put something on your heart, because we know that this grieves God. And as you think about that particular situation, perhaps the normative of it does make you feel powerless and inadequate in terms of what you think you can bring. And here's where we remember Micah's words. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. So what are your two fish and your five loaves? Something which may seem insignificant or embarrassingly little but if we think about that story of multiplication, if we bring that, Jesus can multiply. It will in the end be God who brings justice, freedom, and restoration. But for some reason, he wants to use you and me, people like Alice as well, to do it, to stand in the breach of the world around. And our job is very simple, to obey, depend, depend, and align ourselves in confidence on Him because He is the God who wants justice to roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Lord Jesus, we know that it is Your nature to bring justice, to bring rescue. And Lord, we want to align ourselves with You in doing that. Lord, I just pray that You'd help each of us to know what is the just the everyday thing that you want us to do? What are you asking us to do, Lord? And I pray that you just help us to do that and to do it with love, humility and mercy. And Lord, we pray then that you would take what we bring and that you would multiply it. And Lord, we pray that through that, this world would be changed. That we would see justice, that we would see freedom for people who are oppressed. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who, as we remember earlier, rescued us, and, uh, and to whom we owe everything. Amen.